to Edutechnicalities, a podcast dedicated to the trends and topics facing higher education. My name is Roland Moe, and I am your host for our special series on Emergent Scholarship. This seven-part series provides a deep analysis on the conceptualization, generation, and dispersal of knowledge and its relationship to the academy, be it in the professoriate or the relationships between education and the community. Our hope is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship, as well as signpost opportunities to support this production and dissemination in traditional spaces, such as academic disciplines, campus departments, and institutional promotion, tenure, and review. Our guest for this episode is David Kernahan, associate editor of Wonky, a higher education publication based in the United Kingdom. Until June of 2016, he worked at JISC as a program manager and senior co-design manager, after being seconded from HEFCE in 2006. He has also worked for the University of Glamorgan, now the University of South Wales. David's career in higher education is remarkably varied, but one common theme is an amplification of scholarship through novel means, audio, video, interactive web, multimedia, and even experimental design. We discuss the role of scholarship in the public sphere, not just in sharing knowledge to an audience outside of the academy, but what constitutes a public sphere in the 21st century, and how must new knowledge interact outside of traditional spaces. From your perspective, if the number of 18-year-olds is declining in the UK, and we're, we're seeing something similar in the United States, and the traditional manner of thinking about higher education is the somewhat elite transition from compulsory school to higher education, what needs to change versus what is changing? How do you think the problem should be dealt with? We've recently, from 2012 onwards, had a number of interventions in the way higher education works in the UK to make it function more like a market. So there's been a huge number of government decisions that have been based on the idea of higher education would be better if institutions directly compete for students in the simplest, most year one economics way possible. The initial intention was to get them to compete directly on price. So you'd say, okay, I'm not going to go to the University of Oxford. That's quite expensive. I'm going to go to the University of Oxford Brooks because that's quite cheaper. That was literally the way ministers were thinking. As things have continued, you start thinking about the idea of quality, the idea of place, the idea of experience, the idea of other things these students may want. In the UK, we're just on a national policy level waking up to the idea that some students do not come in at 18 years old, even though in terms of the actuality of what's happening, a sizable minority, actually it's a majority now, a majority of students do not come in directly for A-levels at 18-year-olds. We can no longer expect that it will be a full-time three-year undergraduate course that graduates will do, and we can no longer expect that they will want to go straight out afterwards and get a graduate job. So there, although the policy changes at a national level haven't yet been made, for instance, eligibility for maintenance loans, which in the UK are supported and backed by the government, it's only this year that you've been able to access a maintenance loan if you are studying part-time rather than full-time. It's not the case that if you are studying via distance learning, uh, be that full-time or part-time, that you can get any kind of a loan at all from the government. Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done there, thinking about what we quaintly in our uh, British uh, leatherback chair way 
call uh, non-traditional students, it is seen that that is where the action is. One of the things in this project on emergent scholarship is the discongruence between policy and political action versus the efforts happening amongst faculty, staff, and administrators on university campuses. So we have this space where local and national political actors are shaping the manner in which things are to be delivered or imagining best practices, so to speak, versus this traditional way that the academy engages uh, a concept. And there does not seem to be a lot of conversation in many cases between both of those spaces. Uh, I'm interested in your perspective now as an analyst on higher education policy. Where do you see the breakdowns between what the government is producing and what institutions are producing? That's an interesting question. I think you could also usefully draw a demarcation between what institutions as a body corporate are producing and what academics are trying to do in the space. There is a lot of antagonism, I feel, at the moment between academics and the institution as a body corporate. Uh, We saw this earlier this year. There were strikes around the way that uh, pensions are calculated. Um, Academic pensions in certain institutions were effectively going to be radically devalued. There was a lot of industrial action, several days of strikes, a major disruption. But through that lens, you saw very much the re-emergence of us and them in between academics and administrators. And in certain parts of the academic discourse, you saw a certain dismissiveness to what they would call the policy or class cadre. If you're going to put it in... Um, old-fashioned Marxist terms, the um, academics see themselves as workers, but they see wonks and administrators as facilitating the agency of the power-holding class, which is an interesting perspective uh, given the usual pay differential between top-level academics and the people that uh, nominally hold the power. It's kind of really interesting on that level. So In academic circles in the UK, in certain parts of them, you see a real disconnect between the perception of what government and institutions working with government are doing and the idea of an academic critique of the sector. Academic critique has not really advanced much beyond the idea of neoliberalism with all of the definitional issues that that label creates. There's been a start to look at the idea of intersectionality. There's been some concern about adjuncts and the precariat, although not as much as you would see in the US and Canada. Policy and analysis. I like to see what we do at Wonky as explaining what everybody's doing. So, I mean, rather than the conspiracism that you get uh, where you think, oh yeah, the government and the, the uh, vice chancellors and the institutional leaders are over there in a corner in a darkened room plotting, and we don't know what they're doing. Through sharing data and an analysis, what we are trying to do is to help everybody know what they're doing. And we all also publish a lot of work by academics 
that are writing their reflections on what's going on and what's happening. To burlesque the words of, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld, we see ourselves as a part of the reality-based community. That isn't it really sickening that you think back to the time of Donald Rumsfeld and you think, yeah, that was an okay time, wasn't it? Um, How many times I quote Donald Rumsfeld and uh, the unknown unknown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a useful concept. It's a useful concept that he goes for. So, I mean, we've got all this and we're starting to see on some parts of Twitter a lot of pushback in between what we're doing and a certain group of academics, I'd say, to the left of centre that see us as furthering the goals of neoliberalism by talking about it and understanding it and uh, drawing graphs as far as I can see it's all very peculiar so I would uh, characterize in the UK at the moment a great degree of mistrust between academics on the one side and everybody else on the other side I know that feeds into the uh, paranoid narrative of academics but I think that's the position they sit uh, comfortably that's very interesting Um, and, and thinking about it from the United States while I don't believe we have as policy-based um, a media outlet as wonky. We do have things like the Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Education, and then we have the more Silicon Valley-driven pieces like EdSearch. Very interesting to think about wonky as a place of mistrust, because you see a little bit of it happening with the trades here um, in mm. the United States, but not to that level. But mistrust is still running rampant. I think about uh, Mike Caulfield writing about web literacies, that the integral aspect of that is a lack of trust in organization, in the social base and superstructure. If we already use Mark, so let's just keep it up. I'm interested for you in thinking about scholarship and the production of knowledge, because to go through your biography, one of the things that continues to piece through, even though the titles can change and the specific things you are doing, is this fascination with knowledge, all the way down to your, uh, your blog, Followers of the Apocalypse, which, as you note on your blog, is uh, a title to preserve and transmit the useful forgotten knowledge of an earlier age. It would make sense to think that, that Wonky would be furthering the work of transmitting the knowledge, but I find in education that the value of such work, which is to promote scholarship and thought and uh, information into knowledge and wisdom, does not get the same value as a creation that then goes somewhere to not be read by others. I'd be very interested in a little bit of history about you, how you came to Wonky, and the places where you've been able to think about knowledge as this this rich tapestry that takes many forms and is transmitted in many ways, versus that very strict functionalist manner in which people have historically considered the discovery-based mentality. I start with being clear about what I'm not, and I'm not an academic. My uh, highest qualification is a bachelor's degree from and although I don't like the idea of institutional hierarchies from a university quite a long way down the hierarchy in the UK although I like academics effectively I like talking to them I like finding out what they're interested in 
I like finding out the connections that they're making and the places where they're saying interesting stuff is happening. I am not and have never really been an academic. Despite that, I've led what might be described as a quasi-academic life in that I have been at conferences, I've written papers, but that's always been secondary to just the idea of writing stuff and illuminating uh, stuff that's elsewhere so other people can see it and use it and understand it and make sense of it. I think I see uh, wonky as very much in that uh, tradition. We write about stuff. We don't make stuff up. We write about tangible things that might be hidden on row 6936 of a spreadsheet or page 164 of a 212-page PDF document. It's stuff that is out there, is in the public domain. We don't tend to do the uh, leaked stories or we've heard rumours stories. It's stuff that's out there, but it's quite hard to get to unless you've got a set of particular analytical tools to get to it. So those tools, I would argue, are akin to academic tools, but they are not academic tools. It's the same things of data literacy, of deep text analysis, of uh, media analysis, of close reading, of close listening, that you would see as being the kind of skills that would be inculcated in a, an academic setting, but it's not for some reason precisely those same skills. If you wanted to be Mike Goldfield about it, you could call it maybe policy literacy, the way in which language works and data works and idea works in the area of policy. We like to think we have those skills and we use them to break stuff down for the wider world, read, to understand, to use in their own work. And I think in some respects, that's the kind of thing I've always done. I mean, I've got a number of different literacies, although neither, uh, none of them are at a particularly deep level. The combination of literacies I have, I think, is slightly unusual. I get perhaps to see links between ideas that other people wouldn't necessarily see. And in publishing that, I think I always try to make stuff clearer. We met at uh, Open Education 13 in Park City, Utah. What was fascinating for me, and this has hung with me throughout my career, was your keynote, which was heavily focused on a 15-20 minute movie that you made, taking a topic specifically about the rise of, I don't want to say even personalized learning or MOOCs, but those things that became buzzwords uh, shortly thereafter, and looking at the manner in which it was playing out through policy in the United Kingdom and globally. It was a remarkably powerful piece of media and felt to me so much more engaging than the traditional keynote. To think about that, and that's really shaped the manner in which I approach knowledge and scholarship, because it's one thing to have information and have composited it in a way that can be reviewed and has gone through peer review and academic rigor. The accessibility aspect to then take that knowledge and parse it out in a way that not only informs, but also entertains and inspires others and remains... It's going to make things sound a bit like the BBC there. That's like the BBC slogan is something like that uh, to inform to entertain, to educate, something like that. 
And, and, and I, you know, I mean, I think to, to be fair, uh, that's going to be the, the slogan of a lot of, of uh, news organizations. You can make an argument that Disney back in the 20th century when they were doing uh, edutainment uh, very yeah. heavily, when they had a whole uh, arm, that was, that was the space there. And, and there's a messy space between what knowledge is supposed to look like in the academy versus what knowledge looks like to be seen with others, whether it's the BBC or, uh, you know, old Disney videos about lemmings. I've seen that, and I've never seen a keynote like that again. That's Obviously, it was remarkably labor-intensive. Yeah, that would be the reason. But if it was, you know, one of the reasons that I'm putting together this, this series on scholarship is because there is labor. It's just we don't, we put it into other places because of the value that we are, we are receiving from that. But your background, as you mentioned, you have a number of literacies that gives you a unique perspective. And in your production of information, those literacies are evident, uh, whether it is the videos that you're creating. You have experimental music that you've developed as well. Where do those pieces that are not traditional scholarship of discovery, but Ernest Boyer would certainly label as a scholarship of synthesis or a scholarship of integration, where have you seen those pieces fitting into that academic hierarchy and where are the places that you've seen pushback on knowledge development or similar knowledge development you've seen from others that maybe does not break in the same way that a manuscript would? The manuscript is still what's expected to come out of academia. Although I've heard and read lots of people talking about the idea of alternatives, in practice, it would be something that would be done alongside the eventual production of a manuscript rather than instead of. And even, I mean, you talked very kindly about the video I did about Michael Barber. That's actually another facet of the way I got this job, because Michael Barber was unexpectedly nominated as the chair of the new regulatory body for universities in England. Suddenly, I all of the random things that I learned about him became intently valuable, I think. Yeah, Michael Barber scholarship is a thing, it seems now. Even the majority of the stuff I do, it is writing, it is the manuscript. The web, for me still, because I'm old, is text-based. It's a means of transmitting text. I like music, I like moving images, I love GIFs. They are still seen as like secondary to the idea of a text. Um, I think it's a lot harder to do something that's outside of that uh, traditional boundary because all of the crutches you have around expected structure, expected ways of making reference to other work, that's all gone. If I made a video or a piece of music and I used a piece of sound from another source, I could not be sure that everybody would get the effect I was going for. I could not be certain that that would be picked up. But if I'm writing something and I make a hyperlink or a reference, everybody knows what those things are. And you can structure a, um, a sentence or a paragraph in such a way as you can see the context of the link. Stuff like that, I think, interests me in the production of these new kinds of text. There has been an, a growth of academics writing blog posts for a more uh, uh, general audience. I mean, we publish a lot of them. You get people like The Conversation. I don't know whether you have that in the US. It's a big thing in the UK and Australia, where it's academics writing about their research in an approachable way. There is elements of that, but that's actually now in our 
national uh, means of understanding the quality of research, the research excellence framework, um, assessors now do look for evidence of that kind of thing as a way into the idea of wider impact of research. That's been a big movement in recent times. Uh, I mean, rather than just thinking about the impact research has on other academics, you think about the impact research has on a wider group of people. So when you think about the work that you're doing at Wonky as kind of this conduit for, as you mentioned, the conversation, um, and we don't, I don't believe that there's anything that specific in the United States. It's probably still pretty catch-as-catch-can for us on who's producing that. Definitely, there's a lot of public relations as to what, what research gets highlighted in mass media. I'm interested in the spaces that are unique from the traditional manuscript discovery-based research. And you noted that some of the things around accreditation in the UK have to do with accessibility to research. One of the things that we're struggling with um, in the United States at many institutions is this push and pull between the desire for increasing student learning and outcomes and combining disciplines in order to have a greater understanding of impact in society and where that fits into teaching scholarship and service. And most people think that it's a fourth that you have to do on your own time. For the people who are writing for Wonky, and for you who are working not only as somebody who's helping shape that, who's, who's helping, you know, you're basically the producer on, on these pieces. And full disclosure, I have worked with you on a piece for Wonky, yeah. and your action is very much as a producer. So you find a topic, you highlight the person, you work with the person so that the topic meets an audience that they're not technically or traditionally used to working with and then see the whole process through, including a launch date and the analytics of what that looks like, how many people are reading that. And you noted for me that we had thousands of readers versus the manuscripts that I've had published on similar topics, 10 or 15 to one uh, reading from your site versus my research base. And the research that I had been writing was very popular at a very specific time. In your mind, how does that work? Because the work that I did with you was specifically on my own time. It was not counted towards my idea of what scholarship means or what I would do for tenure if I was a tenure track person, what my service would be to my institution. Yet the value of it is in many ways stronger than, you know, the research that I've compiled together on the history of, uh, or the, of the sociocultural history of massive open online courses. From your perspective, working with these people, how can we better value the work that you are assisting with, whether it's with Wonky or, as I mentioned, with the other things that you have been creating kind of a synthesis of, of knowledge and furthering that out there? What are some things we could better do so that received the value within the institution that it deserves? We're starting to see the development of the idea of research impact, as I mentioned. So you start to see particular offices of people set up in universities that will work with academics to say, okay, this is an interesting piece of work. I mean, what's that role? And to an extent, my role at uh, Wonky and my colleagues at uh, Wonky, I see that primarily as uh, being an intelligent reader as uh, somebody who will read something and spot a story within it that needs to be told. And then it's a matter of working with the academic or 
I mean, we have a, a lot of administrators or policy people write for us as well. It's working with them to help them tell that story in the best possible and most approachable way. Especially with the academics we work with, they tend to try and write something as a research paper. They'll write in passive tense. They will not quite have uh, headings that have uh, methodology and results and discussion, etc., but near enough. To get, especially academics, actually, out of the habit of only talking to other academics is a powerful thing. Firstly, it helps the academic in question understand that what they are doing is useful and important and worthwhile and uh, means something outside of academia. I think a lot of academics, especially in the, the social sciences, the humanities, they do struggle with the idea that what they're doing might not necessarily be that useful to other people. It's uh, one of those big things that you just don't say, though, because I can just imagine everybody like, oh, you can't say that. That's not a thing you can say. If you can introduce them to people that are interested in, in those ideas and give that, them the tools to communicate with those people, I think that's an important thing for the personal well-being of an academic. In terms of that being recognised by institutions, universities don't tend to recognise things that are good for the well-being of the academic there's always been this disconnect between what are called academia which is the furtherance of the generation and uh, synthesis of knowledge and the idea of the university which is primarily about the furtherance of the university as an entity that has got maybe a civic function that's an employer of a lot of staff locally that educates a lot of students locally that contributes to the employment market the furtherance of academia as a culture is not, strictly speaking, in the interests of the university. It could be argued that in helping to bridge academia into all of the other stuff, it is shoring up academia. David, thank you so much for joining us today. You can follow David on Twitter at dcarnahan and on the web at Followers of the Apocalypse, the URL being Followers of the Apocalypse. .se. Much of David's writing can be found at Wonky under his name, but if you are going to cite any of his multimedia from the Followers of the Apocalypse blog, please cite him as Followers of the Apocalypse. And we thank you for listening to this episode of Edutechnicalities. Our bumper music, No I Can't Be Happy Here, is courtesy of Austin Myers, who you can find at ak5a.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, the Center for Faculty Scholarship and Development at Seattle Pacific University. Please join us again for the other episodes in our special series on rethinking scholarship in the 21st century, as well as the other special topics and themes that make Edutechnicalities the unique experiment and audio production that it is. My name is Roland Moe. We look forward to having you again. Goodbye.